Morning. Turn with me your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Be Lord willing, wrapping up the book of Hebrews today. We'll be in chapter 13, which begins in the Bibles <clears throat> that we have provided you kids, or if you got it on the back table, on page 1009. Today, as I said, when we wrap up this book, which I must admit has been incredibly helpful for me in my own life, um, since we've started this, not a day goes by that I don't think on Jesus' interceding, Jesus' intercession for me in the heavenly realms, providing courage and patience for me to endure no matter what the circumstance, giving me confidence to entrust myself to the Lord and to trust in his work and in his timing. And I hope you can say the same. I pray that the words of this book will reverberate throughout the lives of our congregation for years to come. Last week we considered um, 12, 18 through 29, and we ended with an exhortation to um, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. However, you may have left that last point last week and thought, eh, you kind of missed the, missed the boat there because we didn't really hear what acceptable worship is. You kind of left that on the table and you talked about it a little bit, but you really didn't give us much of a handle to hold on to. What does it look like? We didn't hear any of that last week. Well, these chapter headings aren't divinely inspired. However, they are helpful to us in understanding that what the main point of the topic to be discussed is. And so we ended with an exhortation last week to offer acceptable worship. And then lo and behold, we look at the heading for chapter 13 and it says sacrifices pleasing to God. This is a very loaded term for a Jewish audience, sacrifices. We've talked a lot about sacrifices in this book. And this author will, the author will discuss offering sacrifices in this chapter, but he has something else in mind that these Hebrews may, may have in mind. What, do, what does worship with reverence and awe look like for us practically? This will be be a very practical sermon for us. He's already covered the theological aspects of his arguments in chapters 1 through 12, and now we see it's time to put it into practice. This is kind of a catch-all chapter where the author hits on a few themes that we've already covered, and then he says his goodbyes. But we can look at the passage kind of this way. We see practical expressions of love in the church in verses 1 through 6. And then he exhorts us to remember our unchanging faith in verses 7 through 17. And then finally, he encourages us by example to practice what we preach in verses 18 through 25. So the first thing we'd like to consider, I'd like to consider is practical expressions of love in the church. So let's read verses one through six. This is God's word. 
Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is God's word. So the first thing, he, he mentions these four practical expressions of love for us in the church. We can express love to God in many other ways, but he focuses on these four. The first one is let brotherly love continue. We love one another in the church, or, or we love fellow Christians. We love them differently than we love others. Caroline and I were thinking about this earlier this week. It's different if we're asked by an acquaintance to do something versus being asked by a brother or sister in the church to do something. We expend ourselves for our brothers and sisters in the church. We don't view it as an imposition. We probably don't even think much about it. It's a privilege to help, to give a ride or to help move or to offer assistance in any way. It's encouraging to us because we know that God is glorified through it. And we also sense, even while we're loving our brothers and sisters, that we are growing in love for one another and that we are growing in Christ's likeness and that we are more uh, accurately and more fully fulfilling the, God, the reasons for which God and the purposes for which God saved us. We have conversations and we talk about things with church members that we would probably never think about mentioning with a friend or maybe even a family member who's not in the church. We should understand the uniqueness of the relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. And we should lean into it and we should foster it and we should nurture it. He moves on from letting bro- let brotherly love continue to not neglecting to show hospitality to strangers. This can come, this hospitality can come in many different forms. I don't believe this is specifically limited to strangers. He's not like saying, it's not important for you to show hospitality to anyone. You only must do it with strangers. I think he's saying we should show hospitality even to strangers. And it can tell, entail much more than just inviting someone over for dinner. Be hospitable both in your home and out and about. Think about the good Samaritan who was, he was hospitable and caring for the man on the side of the road. He met his needs. He didn't know him, yet he cared for him. He was hospitable to that man in need. Hospitality is marked by an attitude that what is mine is also yours. Hospitality can mean being generous with your time or your effort or your possessions. Maybe you see someone burdened in the grocery store who needs help with a case of water or has some other need and you offer to help or someone stuck on the side of the road. I talked to a dear brother this week who changed a tire for someone in the AutoZone parking lot, even though that there were 
He could have easily left it to other people. He could have left it to capable people. He could have left it to AutoZone employees. After all, they do that sort of thing there. But instead, he willingly offered himself up in that way. He was hospitable to a stranger in need. I think we can all agree that our brothers and sisters, the the Petersons set a great example for us as a church body. They always open their homes, their, their home to us and invite guests. They seek to be hospitable with their neighbors. They welcome strangers into their home to stay. It's, it's a very, in a very practical and intangible, and tangible way, they generously honor the Lord. I believe this last part of verse two is helpful for us to consider this. We aren't, hosp- um, uh, that we may have entertained angels unaware We aren't hospitable because we expect to get something in return. We do it because it's a practical act of worship for us. In worship that is so practical that we sometimes offer it even to angels or to the Lord himself. We can think of several examples of that from the Old Testament and the New Testament, can't we? Think of Genesis 18, where the Lord appeared to Abraham and, and Abraham uh, and three angels of the Lord came to visit him and Abraham welcomed them and fed them and cared for them. Think of the next chapter where the angels um, um, visited Lot and Lot welcomed them into his home in Sodom. And we can think of the New Testament, two men walking on the way to Emmaus when Jesus, as a stranger, comes up to them and says, you know, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, surely you're not the only, are you the only man in Jerusalem that don't, doesn't know what's happened? And so he starts talking to them and, and, uh, and uh, they stop him from moving on. They say, wait, have a meal with us, stay with us for the night, you know, and then he reveals himself to them. And we can think of Matthew 25, which we've recently read, where the people ask Jesus, when were you naked? When were you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you in prison? And Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do it for me. It's not a quid pro quo thing. What can I get out of it? We don't practice hospitality for that reason. Okay, you invited me over this week, I'll invite you over next week. No, we are hospitable because it is an acceptable act of worship. I think hospitality suggests a certain level of self-forgetfulness where we don't keep score. We ought to seek to do good and then just walk away. Glad I could help, see you later. Turn around and forget about it. Praise God for the opportunity and then move on and let the Lord deal with the consequences. Let the Lord receive, may we receive our blessings in the heavenly realms and not here on earth. And he moves on from hospitality to remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. This is referring to, to people who are suffering for the name of Jesus. We considered that a couple of weeks ago back in 1032 and following. He said, remember those who are suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we thought about 12, 3 through 13, that we are all called to endure suffering as discipline. But that doesn't mean whoever, whenever someone suffers, we think, oh, 
They're under discipline. Let's leave them alone. We'll just back off. And whenever, they're, whenever the Lord's done with them, we'll swoop in and we'll help them out. No, we have to understand the circumstances that they're in. We're to encourage them in discipline so that they may endure. Kids, it's important to understand that these people weren't imprisoned because they had done anything wrong. They weren't murderers. They weren't thieves. They were worshiping Jesus Christ at great expense to themselves. They were solely imprisoned because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was a significant amount of shame for them in their families as well. There was a considerable amount of shame for anyone who associated with them or identified with them. But as we saw in chapter 10, they visited in them and they cared for them. The author says, remember them and pray for them as though you were with them in the cell, as though you were right there alongside of them. And so if we are in the midst of a struggle and if a brother or sister is in the midst of a struggle, how would we pray for them as if we were in that struggle with them? Because we are, we are sharing their burdens. And so how would we pray for ourselves in that circumstance? We would pray for deliverance. We would pray for strength. We would pray for sustaining grace that the Lord would keep us and we wouldn't fall away under the pressure. We would pray for patience. And we would pray that the Lord would be honored in our thoughts and in our words and the Lord would use this in their, uh, use this in our perfection and in, in making us righteousness and confident that nothing would be wasted because we know that nothing is wasted in the way that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He moves on from praying for those who are mistreated and in prison to honoring your marriage. We can think of honoring marriage in a way uh, that um, we, we often think that we honor God by abstaining for something or not doing something. But this argues that we should work to honor our marriage. We should do positive things in our marriage, not just abstain from negative things, but work to do the good, protect it, nurture it. This is the earthly picture of how Christ loves his church. And so reflect, on, reflect that relationship of Christ and the church well and willingly and eagerly. And if you aren't married, you can honor your marriage that may yet to come by guarding your hearts and minds today and protecting yourself for that day that is to come so that you will not have to deal with double-mindedness or callousness. We honor our marriages by guarding them from the inside, by examining our thoughts and our motivations and by being accountable to others. But we also honor our marriages by guarding them from the outside, by guarding the marriage bed, which is another way of saying guard your eyes and, my, eyes and minds and bodies from sexual immorality in every form. This is important for us because one can easily fall away from the living Lord through this Um, through this sin. This is a temptation that is present, ever present, and we can fall away from the living Lord quickly through this temptation. So we must fight to stand against it. Finally, he tells us to keep our lives free from the love of money. He doesn't command us to take a vow of poverty. He says, examine your life and guard it from the love of money. 
We read about investing and saving and spending and wisdom and purchases in Scripture. God isn't against us having things. But it seems that there are two pitfalls that we must um, guard against regarding money in verse 5. One is a covetousness of money. We must be aware and guard against a covetousness of money. Be content with what you have. We can feel very content and grateful for what the Lord has given us until someone else comes along with more than what we have or they go do something that we didn't even know we wanted to do until they do it. And then all of a sudden, we feel like we have nothing and our contentment is completely gone. Kids, you know this. You know that there are things that you want and you convince yourself that you won't be happy unless you get them and so you scrimp and you save or you ask for it for, for a birthday or for Christmas and you get it in the moment you get it, you realize that your desires haven't subsided. They've merely moved on to the next thing. And so you start thinking, if I only had more money, then I wouldn't have any need. I took care of this need, now I have this need. If I had enough money, I'd be able to take care of all my needs. I won't ever lack. But you can't because that feeling never subsides. The minute you start serving the love of money, you fall prey to all sorts of desires that can never be satisfied and, it, and it, it, it snowballs into a continual lust for more. The other pitfall that the author uh, urges us to avoid is at the end of verse 5 and into verse 6, finding security in money. It's not just being content with money, but it's also finding security in money. This is a very easy trap for us to fall into, very easy. We can find great security in our savings account or in our checking account. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a savings account or have an emergency fund, we should. But does it replace your security in the Lord? When something happens that affects us and we're asked, oh my gosh, what are you gonna do? And you go, well, I can handle it, but it's going to cut into my savings. Does that betray a confidence in your savings account that the Lord provided you? It's easy to go, God, man, I, I feel insecure because now my savings is depleted. No, the Lord has provided for you in advance. The Lord is caring for you. Finding security in money causes us to be stingy with others. We're called to be open-handed, hospitable, generous with others at the, at the expense of ourselves. But if our security is in money, we will never ever hold on loosely to what we've been given. We will never be self-forgetful in giving. It retards our generosity. God has said he will never leave us nor forsake us, verse 5. That confidence keeps us from hoarding what we've been given. It, it keeps us from wrongly thinking that we can outgive God. God commands us to expend our resources for kingdom purposes. So be generous. Give. Give to the church. Give to the school. Give to CareNet. Give to other charities. Give to brothers and sisters who may be in need. Don't give under compulsion. Give generously. Give without being asked. Are you afraid that if you're maybe you're too generous, then God is going to say, nope, 
I'm not giving you any more because you gave away all that I, I, all that I gave you. That's the attitude of the man that was given one talent and buried it in the dirt because he mistakenly thought God to be a hard man. Be generous. You could easily and logically argue that the parable of the talents, the one who is rewarded is the one who gave as much away as he could. And then he's the one that got more. We see this quote from Psalm 118.6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If there's ever a way to humbly feel bulletproof, this guy does it. He's trusting in the Lord. He knows that whatever comes, it may be scary, but the Lord will be with him. Jesus, he, he, Jesus kind of alludes to this when he goes, what can man do to you? They can kill the body, but then what? I've got all of that. Trust in me. I can take care of you here and I can take care of you there. And so this man entrusts himself to the Lord. What can man do to, to, uh, what can man do to me if God is on my side? Now compare that attitude to the man trusting in his money and possessions in Luke 12, 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a man who wants for nothing. Who sits back and enjoys and is fully leaning on his possessions. That is until the very next verse. When Jesus says, fool, this very night your life will be required of you. Those possessions will do him absolutely zero good that night. But if your trust is in the Lord, even if man may kill you, they can never ever separate you from your security, the Lord. Do you feel the deep, deep roots of the security found in the words of the psalmist? What can man do to me? God is my helper. That security can never, ever be found in money. Only in the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Nurture and guard your loves. That's what the author is telling us in the first six verses. In verses 7 through 17, we're commanded to remember your unchanging faith. Remember your unchanging faith. Let's begin reading in verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought, brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the, the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. <clears throat> so the author exhorts us to see the unchanging faith of the leaders that have gone before you. This is referring to the elders who have died, who proclaimed the gospel to them, maybe who were killed uh, on the, for the sake of the gospel, or maybe who, who, who were um, um, who have since died, but, but uh, who originally shared the gospel with them, who have since gone to be with the Lord. He's encouraging, think about the message they proclaimed. Did it change when their circumstances changed? Were they faithful to the end? Did they die renouncing the Lord? Not at all. They were called to consider them, uh, they were called to consider them the same way that we were called to consider the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. Look at your leaders who, who have uh, believed on the gospel and they have died. The same way that you, faith, you look back at those faithful heroes in chapter 11. So how does this apply to us? We have all been encouraged by faithful ones who have confronted death confidently and who have been comforted in the grace of God. We all have those people in our life that you can give evidence of, of just a faithful endurance to the end. But I don't think we have to be thinking about folks who have passed on. There are brothers and sisters around us who are enduring trials of many kinds. And we can consider them as their faith stood up in their circumstances. Consider Pastor Larry. He's dealing with the effects of Parkinson's. Yet I've never ever heard the slightest twinge of a change of focus in his teaching or in his praying, nor in his daily life. He's leaning on Christ more today than he was the day that I met him. Consider his life. Consider his prayers. I joke with him all the time that if you squeeze him, Bible comes out. Hallelujah for that. Look at his life. Does he live as if the Bible's true? He sure does. Look at his wife. Karen is caring for him in ways that she never has before. Is she relying on anything but the Lord? Nope. She's believing on the Lord, not for cures, but for hope. She's looking to the reward. She offers up her weakness to the Lord and she is asking for him to sustain her. And she has found him faithful. How about her sister, Stephanie? She's had some very difficult years and she's suffered through, suffered through incredibly trying and uncertain times. But when I would meet with her, what's her prayer? I just want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to suffer well. I don't want to trust my marriage working out. I want to find my joy in the Lord. Does her life give evidence of the gospel? Absolutely. Consider her. 
Consider Glenn and Lee and the health challenges after health challenges that they've had. They've been part of this church for a long time. And their lives have seemingly gotten harder year by year. Are they following a different message or trusting in a different gospel today than they were when they first set foot in your church? No. Their circumstances have changed, but they have doubled down on hope and confidence in the word of God. Do any of these people say, hey, I've got my own problems. I don't got time to worry about yours. No, they expend themselves for the sake of the gospel. So why hasn't their attitude um, toward the gospel changed? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christianity is not a religion based upon situational ethics. It's based on an unchangeable savior. It doesn't just work when times are good. We've thought a lot about that in our study of Hebrews. We know that God has purposes in the good times as well as the bad. And our hope is not built on circumstances changing. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Since ours is an unchanging faith, don't be led astray by any diverse or strange teachings, verse 9. It appears that the author here is speaking of old covenant dietary laws. People were being tricked or deceived into, uh, into going back to the old way, the old covenant law. Why would they be lured back to Jewish dietary laws? Why would anybody want to do that when they have freedom? Because it was a very public way to identify with the culture at large and not stick out so much which would lead to persecution from the Jewish leaders. It sounds like there were teachers among them who had devised reasons and rationalizations to submit to these laws for health or for, for benefits of the soul. And these Jewish Christians were all too willing to buy into it because it provided them with a thinly veiled spiritual reason to do what they wanted to do. They could claim that somehow going back to the old covenant laws was the right thing to do, was the wise thing to do, and it would eliminate any social difficulty in the process, which was a plus. Never mind that Jesus declared all foods clean. And we read that in Mark 7, and then he reinforced that there were no more clean or unclean foods to Peter in Acts 10. But we shouldn't minimize the temptation to go along to get along here. There is a, always a temptation to go along with culture. Even Paul had to call Peter to account in Galatians 2 for separating with Gentile Christians and, and uh, eat with the Jews. And if it was a temptation for the, for the disciples, it's going to be a temptation for us as well. We must take heed. In every generation, there is a constant pull to be considered respectable to the world. None of us wants to be considered unreasonable, backwoods, Neanderthals, nor do we want to be considered cold or unhateful or hateful or inhospitable. Take, for instance, you kids in college, 
either headed there, either there or headed there in a few weeks or even in the next year, you will be dragged wittingly or unwittingly into any number of social issues and causes. And the world will have very strong opinions about it. Take for instance, gender and pronoun issues. You're going to be bombarded by this. And what once seemed very cut and dry to you may seem more gray now than it used to be. It's a lot more complicated issue now than I used to think. If you think that way, let me ask you a question. Is that because you know your Bible so much better today than you did four or five years ago? Or is it because you've been exposed to so much more of the world in the last four or five years? Ours is an unchanging faith because it depends on and has as its source and perfecter an unchanging God. What was a sin 500 years ago in scripture is still a sin today. Nothing has changed. The world has changed, but God hasn't. The pressure on you is going to be immense. A man may ask you to refer to him as she or her, and he is asking you to lie about God's creation. And you may deal with people who demand that you love them and support them in ways that they see fit. You must affirm me in my choices. If you, if you love me and care about me, you must affirm me in my choices. But think about your relationship with your parents. Do they love and support you? Absolutely they do. Do they love and support you in ways that you want or prefer to be loved and supported all the time? They do not. Why not? Because they are commanded to love and support you according to God's commands for your good and for his purposes. You need to be prepared for these challenges. Oh, you can find plenty of books that will present you with hundreds of pages of rationale and reasoning for why homosexuality or sex outside of marriage or, or any of these other things is no longer something we should concern ourselves with in the church. After all, God commands us to love our enemies. You can go find a justification for anything you want to make a justification for. But we are commanded to love one another according to God's commands and by his standards. Consider the rich young man. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He thought he was in. He had done it all. And Jesus looked at him and said, what? Jesus looked at him and, and what did he do? He loved him. He loved him and told him one thing you lack. Sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. The author in verse 9 says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Your social media capital or your reputation among the world isn't going to strengthen your heart. It's not going to strengthen your faith. You will be strengthened by grace that comes from God. 
Good public, public works won't save you any more than animal sacrifices on the altar. Verse 10, he says, we have a different altar from which we eat. This calls two things to mind. We've got, first of all, we've got, there's no altar in the heavens, but we know that Jesus, through the blood of the sacrifice, his own sacrifices, entered into the heavenly realms, and he is our great high priest who speaks a better word. And then he mentions the bread that we eat at the altar. I'm reminded of Jesus saying, I have bread that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so because of Jesus' offering on the cross and intercession on our behalf, we can enjoy that sustaining food of doing the will of him who saved us. In verse 11, verses 11 through 14, the author is acknowledging that this Christian life that he's just called us to can be very difficult. It can be costly. It's humiliating at times. And it can be mischaracterized by the world. He mentions going outside the camp. There are many references to going outside the camp in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Ligon Duncan observes that there are three basic Uh, circumstances or situations that these references fall into one is that someone is clean and undefiled like they have leprosy or they've um, or they've died or they've touched a dead body and they would be put outside the camp next is someone who has sinned against the Lord and they are set outside the camp to be judged or to be stoned And then lastly, the carcasses of the dead atonement offerings, the dead atonement animals, their blood was taken inside the temple, but their bodies, the bodies of the animals themselves, they were taken outside the camp and were destroyed. In all three of these instances, it denotes a separation from God. You're no longer considered to be part of Israel. You are are alone. You're, You're outside of them. But in verse 12, it says that Jesus suffered outside the camp. He was taken outside the city of Jerusalem and he was crucified outside the camp. He was removed from the people of God because the Israelites said, this man isn't one of us. And they took him outside the camp to get rid of him, to to crucify him. And he was accursed. He was judged, not because of his sin, But he was judged for the peoples. He was put outside the camp for our sin. He was forsaken. He was cast outside the camp as the scapegoat was sent off into the wilderness with the sins of the guilty on his head. But he was raised. Our sin that he bore was fully and finally dealt with. Our stain is gone. Our uh, guilt is removed. He suffered the penalty that we deserve from an eternal God, and he paid it in full. And so in verse 13, the author says, Therefore, since Jesus has done that, let us go to him. Let us follow him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. This doesn't mean that we should go, okay, well, we need to be declared unclean or we need to go be crucified. But for those first century Jewish Christians, this was clear. No longer take refuge in the holy places you once knew. 
Break with Judaism. Leave the ceremonial cleanliness behind and follow Jesus. Following Jesus will lead to humiliation. It will lead to shame. It will lead to rejection from those you love. For us, obviously, we aren't being lured away by Judaism, but we must be sober to understand that we are called to leave the comforts and acceptance of the world behind. You may have, um, um, you may have people, family or friends or roommates or coworkers turn their back on you because of what you believe, because their friendship with you is based upon your acceptance of their beliefs with no regard for your own beliefs. You know that is the cost. And so go out to Jesus and bear the reproach that he endured. Why? Because this isn't your city, he says in verse 11. Is that right? No, in verse 14, because this isn't your city. We have a lasting city. You aren't called to be to be accepted in Austin or in College Station or Huntsville or Copenhagen or Houston. No, we're called to a heavenly city. We are looking for our acceptance there. That's where we want to be our acceptance. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've already heard, we've already thought about that word reproach as well, right? Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt. And then we think back to Abraham. You know, uh, Abraham wasn't looking forward to a heavenly city. He was looking forward to a city that whose designer and builder is God. What's the point? Faithful endurance looks this way for you. It's the same as the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. When you go against the world, when you bear the reproach of the world, and when you go, I'm okay with not being accepted here. My, I want to be accepted in heaven. Your, your unchanging faith is exactly the same as the unchanging faith of those heroes that we read about in chapter 11. It's no different. You're a long line of faithful people who are still waiting on their inheritance, who are still waiting on the promises and on their reward. And you will, they will receive it when you receive it. And so the stakes are just as high today as they were then. Look to the reward and endure faithfully. We are better equipped than they were to, to endure because we have these means of grace. The Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and insight. Christ's sacrificial work and his intercessory power gives us the strength that we need to endure. And he, offered, and he enables us to offer up a sacrifice of praise to his name. And we're able to do the will of him who saved us doing good, sharing it with others. These are all sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And so we're called in view of God's mercies, as Paul says in, 12, in Romans 12, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. These are sacrifices that are pleasing to God, a living sacrifice. Bear the reproach, offer up yourself for the benefit of others. This is your spiritual act of worship. We see one more means of grace in chapter 17 that the Lord gives us 
to remind us of our unchanging faith. It's elders. It's leaders in the church. Let's read verse 17 again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The elders of this church, this local church, were given to you for your spiritual good. The author calls us to obey our elders, to obey our leaders. And I say us because in a plurality of elders, I have elders just like you have elders. And so we are all called to submit to the elders. And what does obedience look like? What does obedience to elders look like? It doesn't mean obey them at all costs. You, you obey them when they agree with Scripture. Jonathan Lehman describes an elder's authority uh, not as one, of, um, uh, um, um, as one of counsel as opposed to command. You'll probably notice the interactions that we elders have with you uh, are much more forceful in the pulpit than they are after we're talking after church. Why is that? Because we can be pretty confident when we're speaking from the word. Thus says the Lord. We're on solid ground. We even can command you to do things when the Bible commands you to do things. But in your interactions with us outside of preaching, how many times do you ever hear us command you to do something? Very seldom, if ever, right? That doesn't mean that you shouldn't heed what is said. We understand that our authority is derived from God's word. We seek to persuade and to instruct as opposed to command. We may not know exactly what, a, what, the, what, uh, what the right course is in a particular situation, and so we try to bring it back to Scripture and to show you principles or identify pitfalls that need to be repented of or, or steered away from. Lehman says, an elder doesn't force, but teaches, because a forced act of godliness is no godliness. A godly act is willfully chosen from a regenerate new covenant heart. Therefore, we may not be as forceful as you would like for us to be. We may not be as black and white as you would like for us to, or as decisive as you would like for us to be. We are trying to the best of our ability to care for you according to God's commands and not yours. Hey, I want to be cared for this way. We don't answer to you on judgment day. We answer to the Lord on judgment day. We don't even care for you according to what seems right to us. It would be profitable or preferable for us at times to be able to say, stop doing this or start doing this, but we don't because we understand that that's not our authority. Again, we seek to persuade, we seek to instruct. We view our role as teaching and training the congregation and the person to arrive at these conclusions on their own for the glory of God. 
However, everything we do, we're quick to realize that we have to give an account on Judgment Day for whatever we do. And that is a sobering thing. There was an old Puritan pastor, John Brown, who wrote to a young minister, I know the vanity of your heart and that you feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison especially with those brethren around you. But I assure you on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you have had enough. We firmly believe that your souls have been entrusted to us for as long as you are a member of this church. Do we make mistakes? Yes, far too many to even count. But by God's grace, the Lord graciously died for those as well. I would just encourage you to reflect on what a unique relationship this is between you and a pastor. What other relationship outside of your parents or a spouse or a sibling does someone pursue these types of difficult conversations to seek to care for your soul? Do you think all of those conversations are always pleasant? Do we look forward to having those? We do them because God has commanded us to keep a watch over your soul. College students, Please hear this and consider you need to join a church in your college town. Join a church. Don't go to a church. Join a church. Join a church who understands and believes Hebrews 13, 17. You need to be watched over and you need to be cared for. We just read that you shouldn't be led astray by strange or diverse teachings. We are prone to wander. You don't just need someone forceful in a pulpit who's a good speaker. You need a church who that that has pastors who take their shepherding role seriously and who will care for you. The situations that you face will rarely ever be cut and dried. You need a church where the shepherd knows the sheep where they can identify, help identify wolves and can lead you through difficult and confusing wildernesses. wildernesses. When you're interviewing a church to join, ask what they understand about Hebrews 13, 17. Ask if they believe that that's true. Ask what that means to them. Ask what their plan is to care for your soul. They're not there to tell you whether you should buy the two-door or the hatchback. Nor are they there to give you uh, wisdom on whether you should take 15 hours or 18 hours. You're a sheep in the wilderness and you are in danger. You need a shepherd. That Bible study leader is not your shepherd. He's not hired. He's not given an answer for you on judgment day. Nor will those three or four churches that you visit. You need to be a part of a church. The online guy or the guy that speaks on Tuesday night, that's not a shepherd for you. They will not give an account for you on Judgment Day. 
We talked about diverse and strange teachings that would lead you astray. There is a lot of that in college. Who will guard your unchanging faith? If you don't think this is important, then you're already falling away. I implore you to think about this. If you want to talk more about this, I would love to talk about it, Pastor Kyle. Any of the elders, we would love to visit with you about this. There is nothing more important. This is a good use of our time. You need a shepherd. And by the way, what we've just said there, obey your leaders and submit to them. Submit to that teaching. It's good for your soul. And so we've come to the end. In verses 18 through 25, we see the author practice what he preaches. We should as well. Let's read 18 through 25. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the soon, to you restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. What do I mean that the author practiced what he preaches? I mean, he actually believes what he's taught us. Let us not just look at the last five months that we've spent studying this book. Let us not just be grateful that we understand a difficult book better. Let's believe it and let's have, um, let's have it change and affect the way that we live the life of, uh, that God has given us. We aren't sure of the circumstances here. It may be that the author is in prison. It's ironic that we would only learn this now. But we see there in verse 23 that he references Timothy has been released, so we assume from prison, and so it's possible that he's he's imprisoned as well. So he asked them to pray for them to have a clear conscience that they aren't in prison for any offense other than the offense of Christ. And so he desires to act honorably among them and he needs prayers to do so. He isn't a super Christian, he's weak and he's in need of strength to endure. In verse 20 and 21, he reprises a couple of themes from the book. He reminds them that only God gives them peace in the midst of anxieties and the trials of life. But we have a high priest who lives, that lives, who is also our shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep gave his blood so that we could enjoy forgiveness of sins. 
and be folded into his family as members of the new covenant in his blood. He is the one that saves us and strengthens us for every good work. He is equipping us to do his will, working in us us with that which is pleasing in his sight. So don't be discouraged. Don't fall away. Press on and trust in the saving power of Christ to equip you to do his will for his glory forever and ever. Lastly, he exhorts them to believe and to take heart and submit and yes, obey. Obey these words that he has spoken. I exhort you to do the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Endure the fight for faith. Entrust in Christ's certain and quick return. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, please apply this word. Please apply these messages from these last five months to our hearts. Please give us eyes to see the hope to which you have called us. The riches of the glorious inheritance that await us and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That very same power that raised our Savior from the dead. We are grateful that you give to us to enable us to endure. Father, we thank you for our unchanging faith. And we ask you to give us courage to live the life that you have saved us for and called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.